Welcome to episode 44 of the Seeking the Military Suicide Solution podcast brought to you by the Military Times. I'm Dwayne France. And I'm Doc Shauna Springer. And we'd like to thank you for taking the time to learn more about suicide in the military-affiliated population. To check out all the shows, search for STMSS in the Google Play or Apple App Store, and you can download an app that will allow you to listen to all the episodes, check out the show notes, and share the episodes with someone who you think needs to hear it. Thanks again to everybody for joining us to listen to an honest conversation about service member veteran and military family suicide. Today's episode is another one where we drill down beyond just suicide in the military affiliated population, but look specifically at a topic that is not often discussed, but still vitally important to the conversation, suicide in military children. Yes, Amy Taft is the Senior Director of Education for the Commit Foundation. She holds a Doctorate of Education, is the wife of a Navy veteran and a mother. She is also the founder of the Third Star Foundation, a nonprofit that supports children that live with a military member or veteran that has received an injury or wound as a result of military service. Amy is driven by a sense of mission and purpose that has been informed by experiences of witnessing the devastation of suicide for a close friend of her family, the son of someone who served in the military. As a military child herself, and the mother of two daughters. She understands the unique challenges and opportunities for military families. This interview is full of practical insights and describes well-conceived programs that support military children. Yes, I appreciate how Amy has identified a gap in some of the support and then develop some programs to be able to support that gap with her and her colleagues. So we'll get into my conversation with Amy and come back afterwards to pull out some of the key points. So one of the reasons why I wanted to have you come on the show was to be able to highlight some of the uh, non-commonly discussed things when it comes to service member veteran and military family suicide. A lot of times we focus on the DOD, of course, service members, the VA, of course, veterans, uh, but then there's that whole piece of military families and your particular area of concern or focus is on suicide in the military youth population. Exactly. I think that the military children, military youth, have not properly been examined over the years when we look at suicides. I like to use the example, I live in a small county. We have approximately 150, 175, depending on military population shift within the county. And in one year, we had 17 suicides. Six of those suicides were military-connected children yet nobody ever paused to peel back the connection between that. Counselors were brought into the schools, each of the suicides were handled individually, and nobody talked about the thread that connected six out of the seven suicides and the fact that they were were military connected. All six of those, the, the families were at different states, some were active duty, some were retired, some were medically retired, so the data was all over the place. But because at the time, DOD was not collecting data on children's suicides or, or youth suicides, nobody even paid attention to that in a very small county, we had a large explosion of suicides, and the majority of those were military-connected. And I think this goes to the public health approach is first defining the problem is if nobody's asking the questions, then we're not seeing those problems. Here in El Paso County and in, in Colorado, Several years ago, we saw a significant spike in our teen suicide rate. 
And, and we did something about it. We established a teen suicide prevention working group, and that number has gone down. But we don't know in a community with veterans, 47,000 active duty service members, some of those teen suicides had to be military affiliated and military connected. And we're not asking those questions. And now, as you said, the Department of Defense is starting to report at least dependent suicides, and that's including both spouses and children. So that's one thing the Department of Defense is doing, but there's perhaps flaws with that, and there's flaws with the fact is we don't know that in the veteran population. Exactly. I I think I've got a dear friend that's on a campaign right now, and she just wants people to ask the question, do you have anybody in your family that's been military connected? And I think by asking that question, that is going to open up the floodgates with the mental health in our children. Because once they get out, like you said, nobody is asking that question. So when you have a youth that comes in for mental health care, we do not know if that youth is military connected because we're not asking. And we have to start asking that important question, is somebody in your home military connected? And then once I think we start asking that question and getting that information, then we're going to start seeing the trends and and we're going to start getting the data that we need. In, in order to do this. I think the other thing that really needs to be done whenever you're looking at this is we need to start looking at mental health as a holistic service with our children. Um, there are so many things that will support a child's mental health. Some are clinical, some are non-clinical. But when you ask the question, are you military connected or were you military connected? Then you could offer services like peer-to-peer support groups. You could offer services like references to the Sesame Street videos. Sesame Street's just a fabulous job of putting out videos and they're really good videos, but people don't know who to get them in their hands of. And so I think it all begins with asking that important question, are you military connected? And then what is that next step? Because that makes the conversation different because military children are in a different culture. Your daughters, my son and my daughter, I was having a conversation with my son one time and he says, I'm not from anywhere. He knows that I'm from Missouri. His mother is from Tennessee, but he was like, I was born in Germany, but I'm not from there. I kind of remember Maryland, but I knew I wasn't born there and I'm here in Colorado. And so military children have a different culture and that's been, been researched and understood and it's an ungrounded nomadic lifestyle. But that adds unique stressors that we don't even consider if we don't ask that question. Exactly. I'm a military child myself, and people ask me that all the time. Where are you from? My parents are from Alabama. I was born in Spain. I lived in Europe. I moved to Virginia. I grew up in Florida. I've spent the majority of my adult life in North Carolina. I have no idea how to answer that question. And many children are like that as well. And so I think that there are the stressors. And what we do know, while the population has not been too studied as far as in relationship to suicide, when we look at military children and mental health, we know that they have an increase of mental health visits. Our military children are seeing mental health professionals more frequently than non-military children. We know that they have an increase of behavior disorders. They have an increase in stress. They have an increase in fear and anxiety and they internalize their thoughts and feelings more than a non-military child. So you're already starting with a basket, like you said, of, of underlying problems just because they are in the military culture. And whether that is from deployment stress, whether it is from moving and not knowing where they're from, whether it's the inability to, to create solid friend groups, 
I don't have an answer for that, but there is something already there just by being a military child that puts a child at risk. And then again, there's that not that connection to these risk factors and what are all of these risk factors adding up to? What are they at risk for? And that the answer to that is death by suicide. Again, we have these, let's address youth suicide, teen suicide, child suicide, um, unfortunately, as, as young as nine and 10 these days. We have these, but those conversations aren't happening in the military community. Correct. And I'm seeing a rise of it in the civilian population. Um, I'm really starting to see the slow trickle of people saying that we actually do have children killing themselves. And I think that's a hard statement for any adult to swallow, just because you do not ever want to think that a child thinks that their only option is killing themselves. And we have to be very blunt with that. We have to erase that stigma, just like we have erased or or worked on some of the stigmas with mental health and adults. Children kill themselves. That is the honest truth. And and we have to face that. But we're not moving the needle anywhere with military because we don't know. Honestly, we are just now collecting this data. We are just now asking these questions. And we have to get to that point where we are openly saying to inside the DOD, where we can start doing some signs and symptoms training with parents that we are talking to parents about as being a military-connected child, your child is more at risk for suicide and just letting the parent know to watch. I know for myself, my husband was was severely injured in 2010. My children went from being uh, very healthy and thriving. This was my then 12 and five-year-old. They went from very healthy, thriving individuals to two girls who would not go anywhere outside their home. They went to school, they came home, they did not engage in very many outside activities. The outside activities that they did engage in were very minimal. It it was maybe one or two extracurricular activities. They never had friends over at the house. And luckily, I knew that was warning signs. I knew that was a sign of something's not right and they are internalizing their feelings and I need to get them help. But a normal parent that did not know that may not see that as signs. They may just think things are crazy in our house and we need to keep them at home more or they're not comfortable with what's going on. So we need to isolate them and let them be isolated. And the reality of it is the exact opposite is true. They need to be interacting with their peers. Children need their peers. They need to be socially interactive with their peers. And so if you don't know that withdrawal is one of the very first warning signs of something going wrong with mental health with your child, you don't know to put that child in an environment to where they can have healthy peer interactions again. And whether that's starting with a counselor and and getting them mental health first with a professional counselor and then easing them back into the system, or it's finding them other peers that may be going through a similar situation and inviting those peers over one-on-one so that they can reintegrate with society again in a healthy way that they feel strong and confident about themselves, something has to be done. And that begins with educating a parent that withdrawal for a child is not normal or healthy. It's the exact opposite of everything in the child development spectrum. You know, and that is the idea of Awareness is good, but awareness without action doesn't lead to change. And exactly what you were just talking about is something needs to be done. And that leads to a conversation about resources, right? Is perhaps if an active duty service member, solely that, 
regardless of someone who maybe is in a, a part-time situation like the Guard or Reserve, but an active duty service member, perhaps they have uh, some resources available. But that staff sergeant that got out after nine years and three combat tours, at least they have the Department of Veterans Affairs, but their spouse and their children don't have any of the resources. Or if the resources are solely mental health, the resource conversation around what do we do once we're aware of this, that's important. Exactly. And that's where I am trying to push the needle a little bit. So right now, what we do have, we do have some very good videos from Sesame Street about children and how they respond to wounds, injuries of war, whether those be visible or invisible. We do have some one-week camps to help these children assimilate with peers that, that may be going through the same thing. Camp Corral is doing a fabulous job of one-week camps. Even throughout this environment, they are connecting children with different activities and that sort of thing. But it's one week out of the year, and that's what they are able to do, and they do that very well, but it's one week out of the year. And then we have some other things. Our military kids provide scholarships for kids to go back into activities, extracurricular activities, whether it be music or sports or that sort of thing. But you've got to get the child to that point. And then we have the Cohen Betnet that is trying to provide mental health. So what I am trying to do and what I've spent the past year doing is trying to create a model of peer-to-peer support that these children meet every single month with a group of peers and just figure out what life looks like for them. Very non-clinical. We, we use tools. I, I call them tools. We put tools in their toolbox for how to handle situations that arise in their home and for themselves. We help them learn how to set boundaries for some of the nuances that may be going on in their house. But the main part of it is we get them face-to-face with a peer, whether that be over a virtual setting or literally face-to-face, and allow them to know that there is somebody else out there that is going through the same exact thing that they are going through and that they are not different. I have my doctorate of education, and one of the, the biggest detriments to adolescent development is the feeling that you are the only person that has a problem. Adolescents need to feel like they are part of a group. They need to feel like they are normal that there are other people like them. And so through this model and and using this peer-to-peer support, we're trying to do exactly that and and help them realize that there are other people out there like them and that maybe they just need to figure out some coping skills, some resiliency skills, some ways to, to deal with this and that they're not alone and they have somebody else that they can talk to. One of my biggest drivers is trying to get them to express their feelings. So I've been doing this for about a year now, and we just had one of our benchmark studies. And one of the questions I have on my benchmark studies is I ask the children in our group, do you know at least two people that are similar in age to you that you can talk to about your feelings? And I have a 98% rate right now that my children that are involved in our support groups have at least two people. And to me, if you can have at least two people that you can reach out to, you're on your way to developing healthy relationships. My second question that I have on there is I ask my children, do you feel like you can express your feelings in a manner in which your parents can understand how you are feeling? And then I ask the parents, do you feel like your children can express their feelings in a manner in which 
you can understand how they were feeling. And in that question right there, I have a 90% correlation rate. So the children that are going through this peer-to-peer support are developing a language and a systematic way of expressing their feelings so that others can understand what that is. And I think that right there is a very huge step into pushing the needle forward and getting these children to talk when they need help. It gets them out of that isolation piece. It gets them out of that withdrawal piece and really kind of moves them to the point where they're able to say, I'm having a really rough day today, mom or dad, and I need some help. Or going to a friend and saying, I'm having a really rough week this week. Things have been crazy in my home. Can you talk? Or can you just think of me or check in on me and just make sure that that I'm doing what I need to do to take care of myself? And those are tools as adults that a lot of us have developed. There's still a huge way to go, and I'm sure that you have more and more stories about that in the adult population. But as adults, it's a sign of maturity and and it's a sign of ownership. Children don't always get that. They don't always have a way to have that voice. And so I think by teaching them how to do that, it gives them an outlet and a way to express those emotions in a way that can be more helpful so that when they do need help, somebody is there to reach out to them to give them the help they need. I presented at a a conference last year and in the audience was a firefighter. And he said, after the presentation, everything I said, and it was about stigma and peer support, he said, your entire presentation, if you simply would have changed the word veteran to firefighter, it would have been absolutely appropriate to my experience and, and what he was trying to do in his station. Everything you just said, if you would have changed youth to veteran, is absolutely what we're trying to do. Do you have two people you can talk to? Do you have a support network? Do you feel like you're able to communicate with your spouse and your spouse, do you feel like you have the ability to communicate? And so we know that peer support in the veteran population is a critical aspect of suicide prevention, but we hadn't considered that that's the case for military children as well. It's difficult. Many veterans say it's difficult to sit in front of someone who hasn't served and talk about my feelings in mental health. And us not being youth or adolescents or children, how much more difficult is it for them to sit in front of an adult who we, they don't even know how we think? That peer-to-peer connection, if the peers are appropriately supported and trained, is a critical aspect in your point of view. It is. And you have a keyword there, appropriately trained. We do a lot of modeling in our groups. We do a lot of discussing. We have very small ratios. We try to have at least two facilitators for every eight children that we have in a group, just so that somebody is there if we need to pull somebody to the side or coach them to the side in a very flexible environment. But it's incredible. It is absolutely incredible. I call it the magic of the program because when you sit somebody down in front of somebody that understands and gets them, a whole new conversation comes open. And I'll be honest, I don't always understand the language that they use. I have a 15-year-old and a 21-year-old. I try to keep up the best um, I can, but whenever I left the classroom from teaching high school, I lost the lingo. I don't always understand it. I don't always use it. They laugh at me whenever I try to use their language. But the important thing is that they create that language. They create those words. And they help each other through this point and help them understand it. And one of the things that we talk about whenever we talk about mental health, and I'm a huge fan of taking your child to professionals. Don't slight that. 
taking your child to a professional is needed is absolutely paramount in this whole situation. But when you take your child to a professional, like you said, you are sitting them down in front of an adult. And most children and adolescents will tell you adults don't get them. So that's the first barrier. Number two, you have to have a diagnosis. So you have now a child who, just like our veterans, has a diagnosis that makes them feel abnormal or like something's wrong or like they have done something wrong. And then a counselor can only work with them as long as that diagnosis is still in place. Once they have worked past whatever the protocol is for that diagnosis, or they get the results and, and meet the goals that they think that they're supposed to meet, the mental health platform is done. Insurance can only pay so much, and, and you have to bill according to the diagnosis. So that care often is stopped between six months and a year with children and adolescents. They work through it. They get the goals met and then they're gone. And then the other thing with child development is every time a child hits a new stage, they reprocess information as if it is brand new. Whenever I was working with children that were grieving, you have a child who experienced a parent's death at three. They reprocess that again as if it just happened at six. They reprocess that again whenever they hit 10. They reprocess it again whenever they hit 13. And some will even tell you that whenever they go into adulthood and they start hitting milestones like college graduations and marriage and things like that, they reprocess the death again. I think our children are doing the same exact thing whenever it comes to military issues, whenever we look at our military communities. They may process an injury that dad had whenever they were five, and then now it affects them completely different whenever they're 12 or 13. And we have to readdress that problem again just like it had just happened so that they can go through everything again and work through it in their understanding that they have now and then give them more tools to help them cope with it a little better depending on their age you know and this uh, again it's a missing piece to the military and veteran suicide problem if we can call it that uh, because we know that if you have a close mem family member that dies by suicide, you are therefore more at risk for death by suicide yourself. And so if a parent dies by suicide, automatically the spouse and children of that individual, same if a child dies by suicide and the parent, the veteran parent, and this is part of it. And, and as you said in the very beginning, this holistic, holistic way to look at it, I this is something that we very much wanted to bring on to have this conversation. Uh, one episode out of 50 is not enough to have this conversation, but I think definitely wanted to bring you on to be able to at least start this conversation and support you in your work. So I really appreciate you coming on the show today. Thank you. I appreciate it too. I think that beginning the conversation is the first step. And like I said in the beginning, we have to get to a point where we are okay saying our children are killing themselves. Not that we're okay with a problem, but that we can say that and acknowledge the fact that we do have a problem with children's suicide. And I just really appreciate you taking, even if it's just one episode, out to acknowledge it. Absolutely.
Like Kate Hendricks Thomas's focus on suicide in women veterans back in episode 20, or Michelle Zook's discussion of military spouse suicide in episode 32, it's necessary for us to dive a bit deeper into how suicide impacts subgroups of the military affiliated population. And I'm glad that we were able to hear Amy's thoughts on how this impacts children whose parents served in the military. Yeah, right in line with that. The first point I wanted to emphasize is about the relative invisibility of the needs of military children and family members. Recognition of a problem or a need is largely based on having a baseline from which you can assess change. The fact that military children are constantly moving every few years means that their data is literally scattered across the country, sometimes even across the world when deployments are international. Given this, it makes sense to be especially proactive in creating non-geographically bound support systems and safety nets for this population, including peer support programming without time or geographical constraints as described by Amy in this interview. During our correspondence, Amy shared a story of what right looks like when a civilian recognized that military family members make their own sacrifices, as well as the active duty service members. She said this, I will never forget one time when we were traveling without my husband. Going through the airport line, I dropped my military ID and went to pick it up. Because I had two kids in tow, the person behind me picked it up and started engaging with me about my spouse serving. Once we got through security, this man looked at me and said, if you have time, I would really like to thank your girls for sacrificing by getting them a small toy at a gift shop. He got down on his knees, looked my girls in the eye and told them, thank you for letting the nation borrow their daddy and that he would like to get them a toy. Years later, both of my girls still hold on to that stuffed animal they received. Needless to say, I was a puddle of tears, but the gratitude of the nation to our children is something I will always treasure. I think that is a very important point in that military spouses, my children, my wife, and Amy and I have had conversations about this, even caregivers of catastrophically wounded, ill, and injured, they often feel like and almost literally are in the shadows, right? They're in the background. The veteran themselves, the service member themselves is a focus. Whereas I've said before that the fact that I didn't come home to an empty house is one of the reasons why I am successful in post-military life. The fact that my wife has continued to stand by me and I still have a good relationship with my children who are college age now that they were in kindergarten when I first started to deploy. And so that's, I, I think that is one of the key aspects of we need to start looking in the shadows and see if there is something wrong there and be able to address it before it comes out into the open. Definitely. And in terms of how they're addressing it, as Amy Taft talked about, with the exception of my residency year in psychology, my practice has not been focused on children, but rather adults. Still, my observation is that many of my adult patients have never learned the kinds of critical communication skills that Amy and her team are teaching. Couples therapists across the country spend many hours a day helping people in relationships to more clearly and kindly express their feelings and needs to each other. The earlier we can start this learning, the better. Being vulnerable and open is a practice that takes a lot of practice. It's also like building a muscle in the sense that we can lose ground if we stop practicing vulnerability with others. If we aren't in the habit of taking regular risks in our relationships, of openly expressing what we feel and need, the likelihood is much greater that we won't be able to do this when the stakes are really high, such as when we're on the ropes with our demons. I believe this very deeply and have tried to integrate this in my own life. I just sent a select group of trusted people in my life a request that they send me a short text 
on a particular day of the week to encourage me to exercise more and not run myself into the ground doing work. I asked them for this consistency of support because I need it to make gains on my physical fitness goals. Doing this is hard, but it's just like building a physical muscle. It's easier over time and it pays off in lots of ways that we can't anticipate in advance. I think the programs Amy is developing and supporting for military children are a very practical way to help save lives. And I think that's a great point. Children, military brats, military spouses, they have a level of resilience because of their experiences. They're amazingly resilient. They're amazingly adaptive. And that doesn't mean they're holistically adaptive. They don't have all of those skills built. And so the idea of they can be strong in one area, but then have some deficits in another. And it's thinking about exercise. Gym rats talk about friends don't let friends skip leg day. Because if you just do upper body all the time, you're going to look like a, a corn dog with a popsicle stick legs. And, and that's one of the things is we can build these muscles. We can build some strength in these other areas of our life to be able to withstand some very difficult adapting and changing routines and environments while at the same time neglecting other areas in which we are not as strong. And, and I think you're right. That is something that Amy is doing is providing that support and providing them some well-rounded communication ability to be able to express their resilience. So we appreciate everybody taking time to check out the show. Make sure to take a look at the show notes, which you can find at federalmentalhealth.com forward slash STMSS44, or by downloading the app by searching STMSS in the Apple app or Google Play stores. In the show notes, you can get links to everything we talked about in this episode, as well as finding the show on militarytimes.com. As a reminder, you can ask us questions and let us know what you thought about the show by going to our Facebook group moderated by the outstanding D. James by going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash group. You can find out more about the work that Shauna is doing by checking out her latest book, Warrior, How to Support Those Who Protect Us, and the work that I'm doing by checking out my latest book, Military in the Rearview Mirror, Mental Health and Wellness in Post-Military Life. Both are available on Amazon and we'll have links to them in the show notes. Just a reminder that the guests and reflections on this show are for informational purposes only and should not be considered professional advice. While Dwayne and I are mental health professionals, we are not your mental health professionals. We always recommend that you discuss these things with a licensed clinician. And always remember, you can connect with the Veteran Crisis Line by calling 1-800-273-8255 and pressing 1, chatting online with them at veterancrisisline.net or texting 838255. Thanks again for joining us to talk about seeking the military suicide solution. Make sure to follow Military Times on social media to keep up with the latest episodes. Join us next time for another great conversation. And until then, remember, you're not alone ever.